Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so as we go over recent developments in the public safety labor world. And I've got a lot to talk to you about uh, this month. Probably won't get through it all. Probably will take up some of it uh, in the following month. Uh, in particular, I want to talk about the first federal court of appeals opinion uh, that arose out of discipline coming from the Plain View Project. You remember the Plain View Project, this outfit of a bunch of lawyers in Philadelphia who scoured social media sites for offensive posts by law enforcement officers and later published their results. The work of the Plain View Project resulted in hundreds of disciplinary cases all around the country. And we've just got our first one up at the Federal Court of Appeals level. And it's a fascinating case. And let me warn you in advance, you will probably end up looking at your social media policy in your agency and say, maybe we ought to rewrite that thing. So I'll talk about the Plainview Project. There's kind of a spinoff case about what the civil, what a civil service board has to do and not do in the wake of Plainview Project constitutional law claims. Both of those cases come out of Phoenix. I will also discuss Iowa's new Brady statute. Uh, Iowa has become the fifth or sixth state in the country, depending upon how you count, uh, to have a statute that limits the ability of employers to discipline police officers for the placement of the officer on a Brady list and or provides procedural protections in the process before an officer gets on the Brady list. And then we have a couple of uh, duty of fair representation claims filed against unions that I think will provide a pretty good reminder as to what the duty of fair representation is and what it isn't. But I want to start with something completely different because I had a, a couple of things come across my laptop screen within a few days of each other and it was really quite striking to me. Uh, the first one hit me uh, yesterday, August 31st, uh, and it came out of my hometown in Portland. Uh, apparently there was a city council meeting uh, and uh, at the city council meeting, there was a discussion about policing and police staffing. Now, just to reset all this, uh, Portland has a five-member city council. And in 2020, uh, the city council voted to cut $15 million from the police budget. That uh, was a budget cut that was approved by the mayor of the city of Portland. He voted in favor of that budget cut. There had earlier been uh, a previous cut in the police bureau's budget. Uh, the result of this budget cut and just the fact that we're Portland and kind of who wants to go work for the city of Portland if you're considering a career in policing, you put all that together and right now in Portland, there are about 1.2 officers per 1,000 population. The national average for a city of Portland size is double that. It's 2.4 officers per 1,000 population. 
And the result is that the Portland Police Bureau, as it's known here, the Portland Police Bureau uh, patrol officers are going call to call. Uh, and many times they are not able to answer calls that five years ago or 10 years ago, they would have been able to answer. Specialty teams have been uh, slashed. The ability of detectives to do follow-up investigations reduced. I mean, it's just a mess when you have half the number of police officers that you should. So what came across my desk to start me on this little bit of a rant? Well, at the city council meeting, uh, the mayor, the one who supported the budget cut, the mayor went off on the police chief. Why? Well, we had a couple of incidents, I guess, over the weekend. Uh, one was where bicyclists called the police because they were afraid that a man who may have been armed was driving down a street and the police didn't come. And the second, we have a street racer problem in Portland and they take over streets and they, they do it on sort of a uh, a hit-and-run fashion where they'll take over two, three, four blocks of a street, occasionally even one of our bridges in Portland, uh, they'll, it's, I don't think it's safe to call it, uh, or accurate to call it street racers. Mostly what they seem to do is burn rubber driving around in circles doing uh, donuts in the middle of the street, and then they all dissipate. Well, the police didn't come to one of these in one of our bigger see, uh, streets. And both sets of concerned citizens, the ones who were the bicyclists and the people who were upset about the street racing, called the police and they were told, look, we're sorry, we are understaffed and we're unable to respond to every call. Enter the mayor, who in front of the city council told the police chief that that explanation was, and I'm quoting, and sorry for your tender ears, Bullshit. The mayor said, quote, let's stop talking about our inability to respond to crime in the community. Let's stop advertising to criminals that they're going to get away with it, end quote. Interesting, right? We're not going to staff the police bureau appropriately. We're not going to change the nature of the civic conversation about the role of police in our society. No, what we want you to do is to stop talking about understaffing because that's going to solve everything. Well, okay. The second thing that crossed my desk came, came to me a couple of days before that, and we're going to post this article uh, with the show notes for this edition of the podcast. Uh, this is an article that is called The Injustice of Under-Policing in America, and it's published in a journal known as the American Journal of Law and Equality, and it's a, it was published in 2022. And when I heard the mayor's comments, I thought, Mayor, I've got just the thing you need to read, and it's this article. Now, let me tell you three basic conclusions in this article. This article is going to form the basis of a book, by the way. Uh, and what this article did was to look at the rate of policing, the rate of homicide, and the rate of incarceration in the United States versus 
uh, Western European countries and some other countries. So did a country by country comparative analysis. What are the three things that really jumped out at me that were concluded by these authors? First of all, uh, they concluded that, and I'm quoting, America has ordinary levels of incarceration, but extraordinary levels of under-policing. Now, wait a minute. America has ordinary levels of incarceration? We've all heard for so long that we put too many people in jail. What the authors are suggesting is that when you look at crime rates in various countries around the world and compare it to our crime rate here in the United States, we are actually incarcerating individuals at roughly the same rate as measured by the numbers of crimes. Second conclusion, and I'm quoting, and then I'll translate. The exceedingly high prison slash police ratio and the low level of police per homicide together suggest that the United States relies on long sentences rather than the sanction of arrest to control crime. Translation, we have far fewer cops in this country than we need given our crime rates. That's the low level of police per homicide. And so what we have done instead in this country is we make up for the fact or we adjust for the fact that we have a low level of police officers per homicides by giving extraordinarily long, comparatively, sentences for homicides and for other serious crimes. Third conclusion, and I'm quoting, there is a striking and negative cross-national correlation between the rate at which police kill civilians and the number of police officers per homicide. So let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, what's a cross-national correlation? It means this one is not just looking at the United States and comparing it to other countries. It's looking at all countries together, and it's finding the same trend in all of these countries. And what is the trend? What is this negative correlation between the rate at which police kill civilians and the number of officers per homicide? That is the conclusion that as we increase the number of police officers relative to crime, we have fewer incidents where officers use deadly force against citizens. Now, that makes sense, right? If you have more cops out on the street, you are going to abate more crime. I, I went over for you a couple of years ago a study showing a, a definite correlation between the number of police officers and the number of homicides. As you increase one police officer, uh, you abate, you do not have uh, one-tenth of a homicide, meaning with every 10 officers you add, you your number of homicides go down by one. And that effect, again, this is the article that we posted a couple years ago, that effect is double in communities that are predominantly African-American. So what the current study is saying, uh, that uh, there's a negative correlation 
between policing and the number of uh, officer-involved deaths of civilians. What's that saying is you want to reduce the number of deadly force incidents, you increase the number of police officers. So back to Mayor Ted Wheeler in Portland. Mayor Wheeler, there's suggestions in the science that what you really need to do to solve the problem of policing in Portland is, and get ready, this is earth shaking, you need to add more police officers. All right, let's tackle that Plainview Project case uh, that came out of the Ninth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals. So this is a case involving the potential discipline of a Phoenix, Arizona police sergeant by the name of Juan Hernandez. He was one of the individuals whose posts were targeted by the Plainview Project. And in a series of posts in 2013 and 2014, Hernandez reposted any of a number of anti-Muslim memes. Uh, I don't need to describe what they are. You probably have a pretty good idea of what was going on with those posts. Well, for more than five years, none of those posts came to the attention of the public, uh, caused any problem for the Phoenix Police Department. You know, and what happens if a tree falls in the forest? Does anybody, and no one is there to hear it? Does it make a sound? Well, Sergeant Hernandez's post did not make a sound until June of 2019, when the Plainview Project published his post, and then all of a sudden, the Phoenix Police Department is in the middle of a firestorm of public criticism about Hernandez and other of its officers, and the department notifies Hernandez that he's facing discipline ranging from a suspension of 40 hours without pay all the way up to termination. Before the final disciplinary decision is made, Hernandez, and he's joined by uh, the Arizona Conference of Police and Sheriffs, known as ASCOPs, they together file a lawsuit seeking an injunction uh, that would prohibit the city from disciplining Hernandez. And the argument is that the uh, social media policy of the Phoenix Police Department is unconstitutional and that to discipline Hernandez would violate his free speech rights under the First Amendment. So uh, what does the Ninth Circuit do with this case? Well, the first thing that courts do in free speech cases involving public safety employees today is they ask the question, was the speech made as part of their jobs? Uh, and in this case, no question, uh, both sides agreed, this speech was not part of Hernandez's job. So then we move on to step two. And step two is what's known as the Pickering balancing test. This is from a, an old Supreme Court opinion called Pickering versus Board of Education. It comes out of Ohio. Uh, and in that case, the Supreme Court said, here's what's going to happen in these public employee free speech cases. The employee has the initial burden of proof. They have to show that they spoke on a matter of public concern. And if they make that burden of proof, then the burden shifts over to the employer to show that it had adequate justification for punishing the employee for the speech. And what does adequate justi uh, justification mean? 
it means that the employer has to show that its interests in performing its mission outweigh the employee's right to speak freely. Uh, and that's really kind of a fuzzy test, right? And in fact, the Ninth Circuit starts off its opinion here saying just that. The Ninth Circuit says what constitutes speech on a matter of public concern remains somewhat hazy despite the decades that have passed since the concept was first employed. But the court says, okay, we're going to accept what the parties say. This is speak speech about a matter of public concern. And Hernandez did not make that speech in the course of his job. Uh, and uh, quoting from the court's opinion, uh, Hernandez's post, quote, assuredly did not address an internal workplace grievance or complaints about internal office affairs. They instead addressed matters of social or political concern that would be of interest to others outside the department. Then the court gets into the real meat of the case. The court says we have a real problem evaluating the constitutionality of uh, the city's social media policy as it is applied to Hernandez. And the reason we have a problem is the lower court dismissed the lawsuit. City filed a motion to dismiss the lawsuit and the lower court granted it. Well, a motion to dismiss means, when a case is dismissed on a motion to dismiss, means that there's no factual record. All of the facts alleged in the complaint filed by the plaintiff have to be assumed to be true. Uh, but there is no factual record dealing with, uh, in the context of a free speech case, what the employer's justification might be with respect to why the policy should exist or why it should prohibit uh, certain things. So what is the problem in this case? First of all, the policy prohibits social media posts that are, and this is important, the wording here, this is what I want everybody to compare to whatever social media policy you've got. Uh, it, the policy prohibits posts that, quote, are detrimental to the mission and functions of the department that undermine respect or public confidence in the department, could cause embarrassment to the department or the city, or could discredit the department or the city or undermine the goals and mission of the department. And the court says, you know, we just don't know whether or not this policy prohibits permissible speech. And I'm quoting, because the trial court dismissed the plaintiff's claims on the pleadings, we are left without a developed factual record as to the harms on which the department relies to justify imposition of its social media policy. The court goes on to say, you know, most of the restrictions here do promote the sort of interests that the Supreme Court has said an employer can promote. Um, and, you know, probably we don't have a problem with those sections of the policy. However, quote, 
we reach a different conclusion with respect to the clauses of the policy prohibiting speech that would cause embarrassment to or discredit the department. Most notably, the provision that states employees are prohibited from using social media in a manner that would cause embarrassment or discredit the department in any way. What's the problem? Uh, Here's the court's answer. Quote, the department does not have a legitimate interest in prohibiting speech merely because the department might find that speech embarrassing or discrediting. Just as it does not have a legitimate interest in prohibiting all negative or disparaging speech. Rather, and I'm leaving the quote now, the department does have a legitimate interest in prohibiting that sort of speech, embarrassing or discrediting, to the extent that the speech could reasonably be expected to disrupt the workplace, hinder the department's mission, or undermine the public's confidence and respect for the department. But, says the court, the social media policy prohibits all that stuff somewhere else. Back to the court, quote, it is thus far from clear what additional work the embarrass or discredit clauses could be doing here beyond broadening the scope of the policy to authorize discipline for social media activity, the department may not have a sufficiently strong interest in prohibiting. Uh, The court goes on to uh, say pretty much the same thing about another aspect of the department's social media policy. And this is one, that prohibits department personnel from, and I'm quoting, divulging information gained in the performance of their duties. And back to the court. Quote, although the department has a strong interest in prohibiting the disclosure of confidential information, the word confidential was underlined in the court's opinion, such as information that could jeopardize ongoing investigations, The challenge provision sweeps much more broadly. It prohibits the disclosure of any, and the court underlined that word, information gained while on the job. The result, what does the court say should happen? Send this thing back down to the trial court to develop a factual record on whether or not these provisions of the policy sweep too broadly into Hernandez's free speech rights under the First Amendment. Now, I'd suggest to you, I've said twice now, I'll say it a third time, look at whatever social media policy that you have at hand. Uh, I'll bet you find very similar clauses to what the court just had problems with in this Hernandez case. And if you do, and you're on the employer side, Time to get your lawyers involved to review those policies. And if you're on the union side, I'd be bringing this up to the employer's attention. It's far easier to point out the problems with policies before they center around a particular disciplinary case. It's, It's far easier to resolve those problems when you're thinking about them in the abstract because there's less in the way of emotions that get involved.
Now let's talk just for a little bit about the trailing, not trailing actually, the case was decided a few days before the Ninth Circuit decided his case, but the state court case involving uh, the city of Phoenix and discipline uh, of a, uh, a police officer for violating the social media policy of the Phoenix Police Department. This is a case that involves now retired Sergeant Stephanie McMichael Gombar. Uh, and before her retirement, she was suspended for 24 hours uh, for a post she made on Facebook that was highlighted by the Plain View Project. Uh, she challenges it. And the disciplinary appeal system in Phoenix is you go to a civil service board uh, and you start off with a hearing officer for the civil service board. The hearing officer uh, turns to McMichael Gombar, Gombar uh, why don't I call her Stephanie, okay? Turns to Stephanie and says, okay, what are your arguments here? And Stephanie's answer is, this policy is unconstitutional. Uh, it violates my First Amendment rights. Uh, the hearing officer refused to allow her to present any evidence on the constitutionality of the policy. So uh, her suspension is upheld. It goes to the Civil Service Board, the appellate body, and the city agrees. Uh, and the city's argument is, uh, and I'm quoting, we have volunteers from the community on the Civil Service Board. They're not constitutional scholars, end quote. So neither the hearing officer nor the Civil Service Board gives uh, Stephanie a hearing on her unconstitutionality arguments. That case goes to the Arizona Court of Appeals, uh, which says uh, that the Civil Service Board indeed must claim or must consider claims of unconstitutionality with respect to the policy. Why? Uh, the court goes into the purpose of a civil service board, uh, and in Phoenix, this is ingrained in the city charter, and the court goes on at some length about, uh, you know, a civil service board uh, is all about maintaining a merit system based on merit principles and professional methods governing the appointment and discipline of city employees. And one of those merit principles that is highlighted in the charter, and I'm going to quote, is that the civil service, the purpose is to assure, quote, the impartial treatment of applicants and employees in all aspects of personnel administration without regard to political affi affiliation, race, color, national origin, sex, religious creed, or handicap, and with proper regard for their privacy and constitutional rights as citizens. Uh-oh, you can see how the city is going to get into trouble on this one, right? And here's what the court says, and I'm quoting. The Charter's directive to ensure impartial treatment with proper regard for constitutional rights is unique among the personnel systems adopted by Arizona's uh, charter cities. We cannot construe this charter assurance as mere surplusage. Uh, that city's argument was, uh, that that phrase is mere surplusage, meaning words that don't mean anything at all. Back to the court. Quote, 
The Phoenix Charter required the board to treat Stephanie impartially, give proper regard to her constitutional rights as a citizen, and to take these rights into account and consider them when adjudicating her sanction. End quote. So, what happens to this case? It gets sent back down to the Civil Service Board to consider Stephanie's claims of violation of her constitutional right to free speech. And uh, like the social media policy, if you're in a civil service uh, system, I suggest you take a look at the underlying charter or ordinance provisions, because chances are you've got a clause much like the one that exists in the Phoenix City Charter. Okay, on to Iowa's new Brady statute. Uh, this is a statute, uh, the bill in Iowa is known as House File 2496. We'll put a link to that in the show notes for you. Uh, this was passed in June of 2022. Uh, and this is a statute that grants uh, both substantive and procedural protections to officers placed on a Brady list. Uh, and it's pretty rare that you see uh, a state statute that is in response to the perseverance of one person. And I do not mean to say uh, that the individual I'm about to describe did most of the work on the Brady statute, or, uh, you know, if, if you want to lay credit where it is due, it's due to a whole bunch of dif different individuals and organizations. But uh, former police officer Travis Hamilton has been working on this for years and years. Yeah, and I know because he's been in touch with me from time to time about uh, what his, has happened to him and his efforts to try to get a, the Iowa legislature to get involved. Uh, Hamilton was a police officer for the Boone Police Department in Iowa, and he got put on a Brady list uh, by a prosecutor and was never told he was on the Brady list. Well, he eventually got told, but it was by a reporter. Uh, and what Travis has been doing ever since is buttonholing everybody he possibly can to say, look, this is unfair that a prosecutor can put a police officer on a list that can result in the officer being fired because disclosures have to be made about the officer's personnel file without there being any due process wrapped up in the system. And the, the, the bill in Iowa, uh, this House File 2496, addresses precisely those issues. So I told you it has both substantive and procedural protections. The substantive pro, uh, uh, protection is found in section two of the bill. And this follows the model that was first adopted in California, later emulated in Maryland and Washington, almost verbatim in both of those other states. And this is language that says, quote, an officer shall not be discharged, disciplined, uh, etc., 
solely due to a prosecuting agency making a determination or disclosure that exculpatory evidence exists concerning the officer. In other words, you can't be disciplined simply because a prosecutor places you on a Brady list. You can be disciplined for the underlying misconduct if there was misconduct that occurred. So if, for example, you were dishonest, you could be disciplined, you could be potentially discharged for the dishonesty. But you cannot be disciplined simply because of placement on a Brady list. Uh, and then the House File uh, 2496 goes on to provide some procedural protections for officers. And this goes further than what you see in Washington, California, and Maryland, where there are no procedural protections written into the statutes. What are those protections? Uh, first of all, uh, the law says that a prosecutor that uses a Brady list must have a policy as to how people get on the list and how they get off the list. And the policy has to include all of the following. One, the criteria used to put officers on the Brady list. Two, a requirement that notice be given by the prosecutor to the officer and that the officer be allowed to provide input to the prosecutor before the prosecutor makes a determination as to whether the officer's name should be included in a Brady list. Uh, third, the prosecutor has to provide notice if, in fact, the officer is placed on the Brady list. So someone in Hamilton's situation where he's never told he's placed on a Brady list won't be able to happen in the future uh, in Iowa. Fourth, the policy has to have the officer's uh, ability to request reconsideration of the prosecutor's determination. And then lastly, has to specify the time frames for all of those decisions. The bill also grants officers, uh, quote, the right to request documents, records, and other evidence in the possession of the prosecutor relevant to the determination of whether the officer's name should be put on a Brady list uh, and the bill concludes by saying that the new law doesn't create a private cause of action against a prosecutor. In other words, uh, police officers who are placed on a Brady list in a manner that violates this new law, they can sue to get their names removed from the Brady list. They can sue for compliance with the law, but they can't sue for damages. So with this statute, Iowa becomes the most protective state in the country with respect to wrongful placement of officers on a Brady list. Very impressive. You know, every once in a while a case comes down and you look at it and you say to yourself, really? Somebody filed this thing? Somebody raised this particular argument? Wow. Well, uh, such is a case involving Scott Kilmer, who was a police officer for the Bells Police Department in Texas. Uh, on March 11, 2017, Kilmer was working off-duty security at a private wedding venue. Uh, he was dressed in his police uniform and using his police patrol vehicle. 
Uh, and over the course of the evening, some guests noticed Kilmer doing some pretty odd things, including placing his foot between the legs of unsuspecting women and videoing up their skirt with a small camera attached to the top of his boot. Uh, and apparently a lot of people noticed him doing this. He wasn't very subtle, I guess. Uh, county deputies were called to the scene. Uh, when the deputies arrived, one of the guests gave them a covert camera with a long wire and plug, which connected to an external recording device and told the deputies that he had removed the camera from Kilmer. The Bells police chief arrived, speaks with Kilmer, who told him that he was wearing the camera because he was supposed to meet with a confidential informant later that evening. Uh, the chief asked about the external recording device uh, and Kilmer said he'd left it at home. Apparently Kilmer didn't think that someone might search his police car, uh, but the police did, and that turned up the recording device under the passenger seat, hidden by paper towels. And of course, the, the uh, recordings that were on the recording device were recordings of videos taken up women's dresses and skirts, uh, consistent with what witnesses reported. Uh, Kilmer was criminally charged with three counts of invasive visual recording, uh, and the trial court uh, takes up pretrial motions to begin with, and Kilmer files a motion to suppress the recordings. Why? And here comes one of those arguments where you have to say, I can't believe they made that argument. Kilmer's argument is, I have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the recording equipment, and it should not have been seized except pursuant to a warrant and probable cause. And the court says, look, you know, there is conflicting evidence here as to who owns that uh, recording equipment, but it doesn't matter. It's clear that the chief had only given Kilmer permission to use the equipment for law enforcement purposes. Uh, those limitations, the court says, means Kilmer has no reasonable expectation of privacy in the contents of the recording equipment. Therefore, conviction upheld, pretrial motions to suppress denied. I want to finish with a couple of duty of fair representation cases. I think it's pretty important to talk about the DFR, as it is called, the duty of fair representation from time to time, um, because it's, it's not as well understood as it should, it should be. So the duty of fair representation is really the only legal duty that a labor organization owes to its members. And uh, this duty, uh, it comes out of a court-made law, comes from a series of Supreme Court decisions in the 1940s, 1950s, uh, involving the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, the cases, or at least the most important of the cases, uh, came out of a seniority system uh, with a railroad union that on its face discriminated against black people. Uh, and so the roots of the duty of fair representation are really roots of anti-discrimination. 
and the way the duty of fair representation has been molded over the years by some subsequent Supreme Court decisions and many, many cases in state labor boards across the country involving cities and counties and state employees, the way the duty of fair representation is phrased today is that a union has basically two obligations with respect to its members two obligations under the duty of fair representation. And the first is to consider member claims in a procedurally fair manner. So whatever the procedures are that you are using, if you are a union, to consider a grievance or a proposal for a new clause in a collective bargaining agreement, whatever procedures there are, they need to be fair. They need to be designed to provide employees with an opportunity to give input. The union can make whatever decision it wants, almost. That's number two. I'll get to it in a moment. can make pretty much any decision it wants, but it must make those decisions in a procedurally fair manner. So that's the first aspect of the duty of fair representation. The second is that the union's decision-making cannot be arbitrary or discriminatory. Now, that phrase discriminatory here, while the DFR did have roots in racial discrimination, that phrase discriminatory uh, here is much broader. Uh, and it, it's, it means in the sense of irrationally distinguishing between two similarly or identically situated members. You can't choose one versus another uh, without any sort of rational basis. So the duty of fair representation has both a procedural element, you have to consider grievances and claims in a procedurally fair manner, and a substantive element. The decision-making cannot be arbitrary, sometimes courts throw in capricious or discriminatory. Now, uh, a couple of things about the duty of fair representation before I get into these two cases. First of all, an employer actually can get sued for breach of duty of fair representation. How, how can that possibly happen since this is a duty owed by the union? Well, think about a, uh, let's make it just a basic case where an employee claims they are wrongfully fired and they want to file a grievance uh, challenging their termination the union wouldn't have the authority to put the employee back to work, right? The only person who can put the employee back to work is the employer. So what courts have held is that where you've got these duty of fair representation cases, it may well be appropriate to join the employer as a party in order that the employee can get complete relief reinstatement or whatever it might be. When the employer is joined, typically what a court does is to draw a line in the sand if the ruling is in favor of the employee and say all damages up to the date that the employee em, employer was joined, uh, those damages are going to be on the union, but damages after the employer was joined those damages are going to be on the employer. There's a bifurcation of damages. That comes to us from a Supreme Court case called Bowen versus Postal Service about 40, 50 years ago. 
the second thing about the duty of fair representation is that uh, employee claims very, very rarely succeed. Uh, I, I think I have undoubtedly read hundreds of duty of fair representation lawsuits against fire, police, and corrections unions. If 10 of them succeeded, I'd be shocked. It's very, very rare. Why? Because the burden of proof is so high. Uh, think about it for a moment. If a union has any sort of reasonable lawyer, it's going to follow fair procedures when it uh, when it considers grievances and other claims. Uh, I can tell you from sitting in uh, the rooms of executive boards when they're meeting and considering grievances, it's my job to make sure that the union is following fair procedures. And I'll bet pretty much any union lawyer would say the same thing. So you're not really very often going to find a breach of the procedural elements of the duty of fair representation. And on the substantive end, think about that burden of proof, arbitrary, capricious, and discriminatory. That doesn't mean just wrong. Union can make a wrong decision and not be successfully sued for breach of duty of fair representation. That means very, very, very wrong. So wrong as to be arbitrary that no rational individual would make that sort of decision. Uh, and that's why when unions are going out there for uh, duty of fair representation insurance, trying to buy it, they're going to find their premiums are pretty high. Uh, that's not because the damages are assessed very often, but rather it's to pay for the attorneys to defend against claims that employees ultimately lose. Okay, so with that background, let me go through the facts very briefly of these two cases. Uh, the first one comes out of the Niagara Falls Police Department, and a police officer by the name of Sonia Drinks Bruder. And Drinks Bruder has filed a whole lot of claims against the city, alleging that she was forced to work in unnecessarily dangerous conditions. Uh, she claimed that she was uh, retaliated against for refusing to take an unsafe assignment, which she described as, quote, being locked in a room with the mentally ill working alone and not being able to get out of the locked room on my own, and I also have a loaded weapon with me. Uh, she contends that though a grievance was filed on her behalf by her union, which is known as the police club in uh, Niagara Falls, uh, that though a grievance was filed, the union refused to process the grievance to arbitration, and that that was, quote, arbitrarily agreeing with management and doing so in bad faith. Well, kudos to Drinks Bruder, right? She or her lawyer had read the cases. That's why that word arbitrarily is in there, right? That's duty of fair representation. And she also has a separate claim that is... Um, that she told the police club's president that a captain told her to, quote, uh, get the fuck out of his office, end quote. And the president told her, put it on a grievance. Drinks Bruder mailed the grievance to the police club six months later, and the union ref refused to process the grievance to arbitration. So Drinks Bruder collects all of these different claims uh, and uh, bundles them all together in a giant unfair labor practice complaint uh, against the police club, alleging that it had breached its duty of fair representation. 
And this goes to the director for New York's Public Employment Relations Board. And he said, uh, no breach here. Uh, there's nothing arbitrary or discriminatory or in bad faith. Um, and quote, although Drinks Bruder objects to the police club's advice that if she continues to be insubordinate, she'll face potential disciplinary consequences, that advice is rational and what one would expect a union to advise its member under the circumstances. Also, a union doesn't have to file a grievance if it doesn't think a grievance is warranted. So unions can make a wrong decision on the merits of a grievance so long as they are not arbitrary. And the court says under these circumstances, particularly given the police club's ongoing advice to Drinks Bruder about her insubordination, um, it would not be a breach of the duty of fair representation for the union to think this is not a grievance worth pursuing. By the way, what are the sorts of factors a union can take into account in deciding whether or not to pursue a grievance? Well, certainly it can take into account uh, the chances of success on the merits. Uh, it can decide whether this case is a winner or a loser, and uh, almost every labor organization does that. They're not going to refer cases to arbitration that are losers, right? Why would you spend thousands or tens of thousands of dollars pursuing a case that you are not going to win? So a union can take into account the merits of the case, can take into account the cost of pursuing the grievances, uh, can take into account the risk that adverse precedent would be developed if the case ended up before an arbitrator. It can consider, can consider the impact of an arbitrator's ruling on the bargaining unit as a whole. So it may be that the claims that an individual employee might want to make could actually harm the bargaining unit and a union can make a decision on the, that basis. Uh, those and a whole host of other reasons are not arbitrary. So long as the union is trying to act on the best interests of its entire membership. Okay, uh, the second duty of fair representation case uh, involves a claim filed by five sergeants with the city of Cranston Police Department in Rhode Island. And the case involves actually a sixth sergeant as well, a guy named Josephson. So I'll refer to them as Josephson, and uh, five sergeants will be the sergeants. So Josephson uh, ends up getting demoted in an incident that goes way back to 2013. Uh, he sues, and he sues for civil rights violation, and a settlement is reached. Settlement is reached without the participation of the police union, which is Local 301 of the International Brotherhood of Police Officers. Uh, the agreement involved the entry of a consent ju uh, judgment, and Josephson was reinstated to the rank of sergeant. So when Josephson gets reinstated, uh, the department employed 20 sergeants, even though the collective bargaining agreement limited the number of sergeants to 19. So what the city decides to do when it's got this one extra sergeant uh, because of Josephson's reinstatement is to not demote anybody, but to allow one position to go away through attrition. So what about the five sergeants? Who, what are they saying? Well, they were all promoted to the rank of sergeant 
during the three-year period between Josephson's demotion and reinstatement. And that meant that Josephson's reinstatement moved them all down one position in rank seniority. And rank seniority means a lot in the Cranston Police Department. Uh, overtime, comp time, out, acting out of grade uh, status, vacation picks, uh, attendance at training in schools, all those depend upon rank seniority. So the sergeants, the five sergeants, push local 301 to file a grievance on their behalf to have their seniority restored ahead of Josephson's. And local 301 refused to do so. It concluded based on legal advice that an arbitrator lacked the power to undo the consent judgment and reorder the sergeant's seniority. Uh, the sergeants appealed to the national union, which denied the appeal. Now, parenthetically here, this is a seniority case, right? Every seniority grievance that a union considers involves helping some members of the bargaining unit and hurting some members of the bargaining unit because that seniority is going to be resolved in a way that someone's going to be happy and someone's not going to be happy. Uh, and labor boards and courts understand that is the case. Unions have the discretion to make that sort of call. And what does the court say here? And this court ends up uh, dismissing the sergeant's lawsuits. The court says, well, the sergeants have to show uh, conduct on the part of the union that is in bad faith or arbitrary or discriminatory. Quote, any substantive examination of a union's performance must be highly deferential, recognizing the wide latitude that negotiators need for the effective performance of their bargaining responsibilities. Um, well, what do the sergeants say? Uh, sergeants point to the fact uh, that instead of pursuing their grievance, Local 301 filed its own grievance and took that grievance to arbitration. And that what the arbitrator in that case ruled was not that the five sergeants should get their seniority rights back, but rather that the city should bargain with Local 301 over whether the uh, sergeant should get their seniority back. Local 301 decided not to pursue its right to bargain because of its understanding as to what an arbitrator could and could not do under the consent agreements. Uh, what does the court say about that? No breach of duty of fair representation. Quote, nothing about the arbitrator's findings affects the rationality of Local 301's decision not to press the sergeant's seniority rights with the cities. Um, Moreover, the arbitrator ordered the city to bargain with Local 301, not the other way around. The sergeants doubtless would have preferred Local 301 to bargain over reordering the sergeant's seniority, but disappointment without more doesn't give rise to a claim for breach of duty of fair representation. So two uh, kind of reminder cases more than anything else about the breach of duty of fair representation. Uh, before I close, I did want to say something about our premium podcast series. Uh, we, we had an email that came in uh, from a longtime LRIS supporter uh, saying, hey, 
what happened to those premium podcasts? And uh, I must say, we dropped the ball on that. He's right, we're wrong. Uh, we're going to go back to them. Uh, we are talking internally about uh, what we are going to do in uh, putting out information for premium, our premium podcast subscribers. I think it's likely to be a mid-month podcast where I'll talk for a more reasonable amount of time, 20 to 30 minutes, something like that, uh, in more of a training mode, uh, talking about for example, what types of hours of work issues are mandatory for bargaining or not, or what the duty of fair representation is or isn't in more detail than I've just gone over it, or uh, Garrity versus New Jersey, you know, whatever it might be, whatever seems to be hot topics out there. Uh, and so if you have ideas about topics you'd like us to address in the premium podcast, send them in. Uh, we are all ears. Uh, so with that, that wraps up the September 2022 edition of First Thursday. Uh, we look forward to seeing you in Las Vegas in a couple of weeks for our grievances and arbitration seminar. Uh, we have great attendance there. We look like we're going to hit somewhere between 170 and 200 attendees. Uh, and, and that always charges us all up when we have a lot of people uh, there at the seminar. So with that, uh, everybody take care. This is Will Aitchison signing off.